0: All right, gang, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. And this morning, I want to direct your attention starting in verse 8. I've given this sermon a title, The Blessing of Grace. Verse 8. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through Jesus Christ that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. I would like to start off with a, a quote from Martin Luther dealing with the issue of grace and, of course, law. He says, The proverb has it that hunger is the best cook. The law makes afflicted consciences afflicted for Christ. Christ tastes good to them. Hungry hearts appreciate Christ. Thirsty souls are what Christ wants. He invites them, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ's benefits are so precious that he will dispense them only to those who need them and really desire them. I love that quote. To labor with no expectation of completion or eternal result is defeating and it's discouraging. Have you ever been asked to perform something, a task if you will, that even though you tried and desperately wanted to please everyone or the very one who asked you to do the the task, You just couldn't do it to their expectation. Have you ever done that? Every husband here knows what I'm talking about. Surely I'm jesting. Now, let's take it a step further. What if you asked for something to do? And when you are given direction, you still can't perform it to the pleasing of the one you asked for the task. Now you have an understanding of life under the law. You see, before the law was given, the children of Israel actually enjoyed a grace-based covenant with God. Many people make the mistake of thinking that the, because the Bible is broken into two halves, the Old and New Covenant, that somehow salvation and justification to God were achieved by two different methods. Many people hold the belief that the Old Testament saints were saved by the law, or by what they did. That is, by performing the sacrifices, of course, all the things that are contained within the law. And that under the New Testament, that we're saved by grace, which is true. This, however, if you believe that they're two different ones, is a misrepresentation of the truth. Because the truth is, my friends, is that Paul states here in verse 8, which I think is amazing, that the Scriptures foreseeing, do you see that? That he would justify, that God would justify the Gentiles through faith, preached the gospel unto Abraham. From the very beginning, God desired to lavish His grace and His love upon his erring creation. He just does. Even before the good news of the Messiah was promised to Abraham, Adam and Eve would be the first recipients of the grace of God. As you know, there was no law in the garden. God had given him one simple command. But, he says there in Genesis 2, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, first, I want to point out to you that God doesn't say here, if you eat thereof. Do you notice that? He says, when, or, you know, when you eat, okay? Now, some people would tell me, and I'm sure that there's some thinking, that, well, the if isn't implied. And I would agree with that if we were dealing with the simple human mind that doesn't know what's coming. But we're actually talking about God who has foreknowledge. He knows what's coming. There's been a meme, somebody's been passing around on Facebook, which I think is pretty cool. It says that God factored in all your stupidity before he called you. (laughs) I like that. Because that's the sovereignty of God. It's true. And no doubt, with Adam and Eve, it was the same thing. He says... But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat therefore in the day that thou eatest thereof. He didn't say if you did. See, God knew they would. He knew they would. Why? Because they're humans. And when you tell a human not to do something, it's a pretty fair bet that they're going to do it. That's like a long time ago. There's always been movies or some crazy thing that's come out that somebody felt was blasphemous. The passion of Christ I heard, you know, there was people who actually, which I thought was a great movie, but some people protested it. There was the temptation of Christ, which really raised eyebrows, if you remember that. And everybody was picketing in the, in the theaters, you know, the Christians were, but all they did was draw the attention to it, and they made more money than they possibly would have if you just kept your mouth shut. But that's the law. Don't do, don't do that. Don't see that. And people are drawn to it. I heard a kid say one time that when he was in high school, he had this teacher. And the teacher was a Christian. And he had a Bible sitting on his desk. And one day one of the students said, so, do you believe that book? And he goes, well, you know what, let me, let me put it to you this way. I'm not really allowed to say one thing or another, but I can tell you this much about this book. This book has some of the craziest stuff in the world in it. And you'd be better off if you just left it alone. That guy pastors a very large Calvary chapel this day. He said, the the teacher couldn't have picked better words for a teenage boy. Don't look at it. Don't get in there. Because that's what the law, it, it just draws us to it. But God knew. So the scripture tells us in the book of Revelation that Christ was slain from the foundation of the earth. Why? Because God had already made a provision for Adam and Eve's sin. He'd already done it. Why? Because he knew what was going to happen. It's so typical. As man always does, Adam and Eve tried to cover their own sin. Now, they did try that. You know, they rebelled against what God said, and then what did they do? They grabbed them some fig leaves, which if you've never seen any, are pretty scratchy and itchy. And they stuck them over trying to cover up certain parts of their body. Now I've got to be honest with you, that's not a very bright idea. You know, that's an irritation. And it just rubs you the wrong way, if you know what I mean. But that's what they did. But then in exchange for that, what did the Lord do? Well, God gave them fur coats in exchange for the itchy and scratchiness of trying to cover their own sin. God showed grace unto Adam and Eve and gave them a foretaste of the sacrifice of Christ through the animals which he took the fur coats from. So the Gospel of Matthew, you know, here's what Jesus said. He said, as it is was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. And I know a lot of people think, well, how was it in the days of Noah? No doubt sin was ruling the day. It was a chaotic time. For the people were rebelling against God and doing all manner of evil, the Bible tells us, but Noah, we're told, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The same with righteous Lot. As it was in the days of Lot, Jesus said, it shall be at the coming of the Son of Man. And no doubt, sin was rampant. But there was one man in his family, Lot, who the Lord led out, who the Lord showed grace to. The covenant that God had made with the patriarchs was grace-based. It always has been and always will be. The Scripture preached the good news, it says. The the Scriptures preached. Isn't that an interesting saying? Paul said it preached the gospel unto Abraham. Now, I find it extremely interesting that Paul personifies the Scriptures. I just find that an odd statement. But it's fitting. The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. Why would Paul personify the Scripture? Well, the answer is pretty simple, really. And that is, you cannot separate God from His Word. Many people today are trying to do it. The first chapter of the the Gospel of John, we're told that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Many churches today, my friends, try to separate God from His Word, try to tell you that you can be a Christian, and you really don't have to worry about the Word of God. I remember an article I read here a few months ago, some famous guy, I won't even mention his name because he's not worth mentioning, said he didn't care about being a biblical Christian. He just wanted to be like Jesus. And I'm going, and he's not even hearing the fallacy of the statement that he made. You cannot be like Jesus outside of his word. You can't separate Christ from his word. Paul says the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen or Gentiles, that's you if you're a Gentile, by faith was preached before on Abraham. The gospel was. I love the fact that the New Testament was not the origination of the gospel. You know, so often we think that that's where it started, was in the New Testament. Not so. Paul says it was preached to Abraham, the good news, that the Messiah would come through his lineage, that the Messiah would pour out his grace and his mercy. Even in the, 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 the chapter in Daniel, it's chapter 9, we want to go back and read to it, and look at it carefully, talking about the coming of the Messiah. And he says that he will make an end of sin. That Jesus would come. Of course, it doesn't talk about Jesus there, but it talks about the Messiah. He was the anointed one, so we know it's talking about Him. That when He come, that He would make an end of sin. That is, He would put an end to it in the cross of Calvary. Now, I love the fact that Paul used Abraham as an example of God's grace and faith. Because the covenant of the patriarchs was by grace. It's an old thing. It's, it's, from the very beginning, it's been about grace. God's promises. It was predicated upon His, able, or His ability to keep them, not ours, not theirs either. This can be clearly seen in the story of the Exodus. You remember after Israel left Egypt. It wasn't very long before they began to complain and, and to begin to murmur amongst themselves against God. However... God did not treat them as their sins would have deserved. Instead, He gave them grace. Now, this is long before the law was given. As you will remember, they were complaining on the shores of the Red Sea. You remember that? And God blessed them, Exodus 14. They murmured at Marah, wanted water, and God blessed them, Exodus 15. They grumbled in the desert, and God blessed them, Exodus 16. Now, God did not bless them because they were being faithful. They weren't. Quite the opposite. The Bible doesn't call them a stiff-necked people for no reason. He blessed them because He is faithful, and He loved them. All that changed, my friends, when they finally reached Mount Sinai... was they wound up exchanging the grace of God for something that was a lot less and a lot more burdensome. I heard an old preacher say one time that the children of Israel, when they reached Sinai, swapped the free bounty of heaven for the carrots and sticks of the law. It was the worst trade in history, he said. On that day, they received the law. The Israelites had sinned again. Now, they had sinned before When they were grumbling and mumbling against God. But in those times, God kept blessing them and blessing them and blessing them. But when they came to Sinai, on the day that the law was given, the Israelites sinned again. But this time, 3,000 of them died. When the law was given, the law brings death, the Bible says. That's what it does. Now, there's some Bible teachers, you know, that that say that when when the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai, one of the first things that they said was, we will do whatever you command us to do, Lord. I heard one Bible teacher say, that was the right response. That was a good response. I would contend that it was an arrogant response, that it was one that was almost a challenge because all you got to do is keep reading the, the Old Testament and the children of Israel, will do what you tell us to do, Lord. Next chapter, the children of Israel did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. They began to want to trust in their own ability to keep what God had told them to do. They already had a covenant with the Lord. It was grace-based. It was a covenant of love. They, they, they thought that through their complaining and murmuring that somehow, the Lord would not, but He did. He kept showing them love. He kept showing them grace. He kept showing them mercy. But there on, on Sinai, they asked for rules, and they got it. Even before, when you think about it, when the Lord, when it was evening, it says that the God gave them a pillar of fire to keep them warm and to warm their souls. Then in the daytime, when the sun was bright, and, and of course the desert was blistering hot, He gave them a cloud to shade them from that and kept them cool. They had witness after witness after witness of God's grace and mercy, but they wanted to trust in their own ability. So they said, we'll do what you command us. Not a good response, but catastrophically, catastrophically a bad one. The gospel was preached unto Abraham. It says, the good news, the grace of God would be poured out upon the Gentiles through the Messiah. Thus, all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ are blessed with believing Abraham. What is the blessing of Abraham? Though some have, well, let me rephrase that. Though Abraham was extremely wealthy, the blessing of Abraham is far more than just those type of blessings. The blessing of Abraham is a right standing with God through faith alone. Martin Luther said this, he said that faith of the fathers was directed at Christ who was to come while ours rest in the Christ who has come. So clearly from the beginning of time until now and forevermore, God desires to pour out His grace upon all who will come to Him in faith. Now in contrast to the blessings that come with a life of grace, Paul told us here in verse 10 that as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse... So Paul began to address those who think that their law performance can give them a right standing with God. His inference is that even Abraham, who the Jews really believe is a patriarch of patriarchs, I mean, they all look to him as an example, not only of a man of faith, but as a man who kept the law. So Paul's inference is that even though this godly patriarch Abraham If he had to be saved by grace, then those less mortals, those of us who are not as spiritual, don't stand a chance. We have to have grace. It has to be by grace. Once again, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he said, a hypocritical doer of the law are those who seek to obtain their righteousness by a mechanical performance of good works while their hearts are far removed from God. They act like a foolish carpenter who starts with the roof when he builds a house. Those who are the works of the law are under a curse, Paul said. Of course, Paul, uh, you know, Paul was addressing the Judaizers who believed that the Gentiles should live under the law like you know, of Moses, that they should be circumcised, which scared a lot of them, and I don't blame them <laughs> because, you know, they really believed. Now, this is the thing about the Judaizers. They really believed that keeping the law was the pathway to blessing. They really believed it. But Paul is so clear here, my friends. Instead of a blessing, trying to live under the law or the works of the law actually puts you under a curse. And so it's it's not hard, though, when you really look and understand the Scripture, it's not hard to see why Christians believe that living under a law brings blessing. I understand why they believe it. There's several verses. and One is in Psalm 119, uh, verse 1. It says, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Psalm 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. So obviously, there is a blessing with doing what the Old Testament tells us to do. There is. There's a physical blessing to it. Your life would be better. I'm sure health wise, my eating habits would be a lot better if I wouldn't eat a lot of things that I've spoken I shouldn't. But what it can't do is it can't give you a justified position with God. It can't bring you to a position of righteousness with the Lord. It just can't do it. On your best day, you will fall so short of the glory of God. We all do. Thus, Paul said in verse 11 of Galatians 3. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Of course, he's quoting Habakkuk. You see, Paul said that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. And really, God's the one you have to contend with. He's the one you should be concerned with. Paul said it's evident that that you can't be justified that way. It's evident. I want you to notice something. He said that no one is justified in the sight of God. But there are many foolish people, my friends, who think that being under the law or doing something for God justifies them or gives them a favor with God. But this is justification in their sight, not in the sight of God. It's evident, Paul said, that you cannot be justified by the works of the law in the sight of God, for the just shall live by faith. The problem with trying to do something for God and trying to keep the the commandments in order to find blessing is that you cannot do it to please God because you cannot do it to His expectations. What is His expectations? God's expectation is perfection. God was content in the beginning to simply lavish His love upon the children of Israel, and He did. But the children of Israel wanted a list. They wanted rules regulations. Give me something I can look at. Give me a law. And he did. And they couldn't do it. Nobody can. They wanted to have something to do with it. And that's really the problem. In our salvation so often we want to have something to do with it. But God and Jesus Christ have done it all. I I, I got to be honest, maybe it's just my lazy streak, but I kind of rely on the fact that God's doing it. And I thank Him for that. Because I know when you're honest with yourself that there's no way that you're ever going to make it on your good works. You just can't do it. There's too many of them, too many rules that you would have to do that you cannot do. Children of Israel says, We'll do whatever you command us to do. We'll do whatever you command us to do. The emphasis was on do, and they failed at it. So the Lord gave them the law to show them, and us, I think, just how far from perfect we really are. Thus Paul, the apostle, wrote to the Romans, and here's what he said in Romans 3. You can write it down, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And when he says none, what's he mean, gang? None. But I'm sure that there's some who will say, but Doug, I'm doing my best. I'm trying as hard as I can to keep the Ten Commandments. I've had people telling me that. Well, you got a problem, and leave it to me. I'm going to point it out to you. There aren't Ten Commandments, my friends. There's 613. You need to think of the Ten Commandments as kind of an index. It's an index. It's a very small portion of it. But there's 613. Now, let's say, let's say you're super spiritual. Let's say you're much more spiritual than the rest of us. And you could muster the ability to keep 612 of those laws. Perfectly. I mean, just like Jesus did. Let's let's say that you were able to do that. 612. The problem is James chapter 2, verse 10. He says, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of it all. See, this is the problem. What's God demand? God demands perfection. Nobody, nobody has ever kept the law except for one. And so, try though you may, you can't win. The only one, my friend, who was able to do exactly what the Lord commanded was the one who gave the commandment himself. And so God, in the form of Jesus Christ, came, taking on the form of a man, and did for mankind what mankind could not do for himself. And I'm thankful for that. I love the fact that God did for me what I could not do. Jesus even said, Lo, in a volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. The Israelites begged for rules and regulations, thus God gave them rules and regulations, knowing they couldn't keep them. He knew it. Just like when he told Adam and Eve, don't eat of this. He knew they couldn't do it. It's not like God was trying to trip them up. He was simply trying to show them how much they needed to simply rely on him. Let Him love on you. Now, in verse 8 through 12, we're actually dealing with pretty bad news. This is the way Paul lays it out. However, in verse 13 and 14, Paul gives us the good news, and that is that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. It is, for it is written, he says, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, because we couldn't keep the law, the law has put us under a curse. It's a burden that we cannot bear. It only leads to frustration, defeat, and to death. Now, when you think of the issue of sin, sin, the Bible is very clear. In 1 John, tells us that breaking the law is sin. That's That's what sin is. It's breaking the law. And because we've all sinned, according to Romans, we all fall short of the glory of God. And of course, the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is death. So that's what the law brings. It brings death. The good news, though, Paul says, is that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That is, Jesus has done for us, once again, what we could not do. He took upon Himself what we could not bear. He became a curse for us. It's extremely important. That every Christian, and I mean this sincerely, understands the idea of vicariousness. Or else your relationship with God is going to be a bumpy one. Let me give you the definition of vicarious. Acting or done for another, such as a vicarious atonement, which is what Christ did. In physiology, it means of or pertaining to the performance of an organ or a function normally discharged by another. I like that. Because Jesus has done for us what we could not do. When we deal with the issue of the vicariousness of Christ, often we think only in the terms of His atonement or in His crucifixion. Thus, in theology, of course, we use the term substitutionary death. And most people understand that. Jesus died for me. He died for you in your place substitutionarily. Or you died vicariously through Him. But as we see through the Scriptures, Jesus Himself was a substitutionary, yes, in His death, but He was substitutionary in every way. He actually did everything for you. Paul said that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming the curse for us. So, vicariously, He has done this particular great work of becoming a a curse for us on our behalf. But the vicarious of Christ applies to every aspect. In Romans 5.10, Paul says that, for if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. You see, God, the Son, took upon Himself the form of a man. And He did for mankind what He could not do for Himself as far as man is concerned. God required that man had to be perfect. Well, man is not perfect. He couldn't do it. Jesus Christ came and did it for us in order that man would be reconciled to God. Within the reconciliation that Christ performed for us contains our salvation, justification, sanctification, all the things that pertain to God, all of which are obtained not by what we do, but by what He has done for us and on our behalf. Christ has already taken care of it. Thus God required that if a man will be justified, if a man will be righteous, he must keep the whole law and must do it perfectly. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus could say, and He's the only one who ever has been able to say it, I do always those things which please the Father. So He was perfect in all of His ways. Lived a perfectly sinless life. Thus He has justified us, saved us, sanctified us to the uttermost. And I love the fact that it uses that term. That we might show forth the righteousness which is in Christ by faith alone to the glory of God the Father. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, before the Spirit was given, while we were yet under the law, we walked according to our flesh. The law, unfortunately, makes sin attractive, and this is why people don't understand. Not, all, not that the law itself is sin or, or even causes us to sin. It doesn't do that, but it shows us the sinfulness of sin. Thus, Paul said, I would not have known sin, except the law said, Thou shalt not lust or covet. So, it brings our attention to, to, to the law, and unfortunately, it... it becomes appealing to us as people. Paul also said that the law was given that sin might become ever more sinful in Romans 7. That is because the law tells us what sin is, it draws my attention to it, just as I said. And because my attention is drawn on it, it becomes attractive. Turn with me, if you will, this morning as we finish up. It's going to be in Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, I'm going to start in verse 14. And of course, Paul the Apostle was the one writing here. He says, for if they, which are the heirs or the law, be heirs, faith is made void and the promise of no effect. Because the law works wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things that be not as though they were. And here's the blessing. You know, the Bible tells us very clearly that as He is, so are we in this present world. And I appreciate that because what it's telling me is that Jesus Christ, everything that He did, the fact that He lived a perfect life, the fact that He died on Calvary, the fact that He rose from the dead, the fact that He stands at the right hand of the Father making intercession for me, is imputed to me. That is, is that because He's imputed it to me, then I am that way in the sight of God. Therefore, God calls those things that be not as though they were. Because some people, when you say, well, I'm perfect, (laughs) they'll go, yeah, but I know you. (laughs) Well, see, it doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter what's right in the sight of men. It only matters what's right in the sight of God. And if you're in Christ, then you are perfect in the sight of Christ. You are blessed. You are holy. You are sanctified. You remember last week we were studying, and and I, I quoted a passage where Joshua was there you know, at at Jericho, and and the Lord told him to remove the the shoes from his feet because the ground he stood on was holy. Because wherever Jesus is standing is holy. And because you are in Christ, you too are holy. See, the law brings death. Trying to please God according to rules and regulations never works. It just doesn't. Because you're never going to live up to the expectation of God. You're just not, because He demands perfection. But His Son did. You remember there at the baptism when Jesus was vicariously being baptized for anybody who never had it done? The Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus came and did everything that I could not do for me and for you. And what do we do? In order to receive the blessing of Abraham, we simply accept that. And we walk that, for the just shall live by faith. It's not a hard concept unless you're just bent on having something to do with it. But let me warn you about that. And whether you're sitting here or you're listening by radio, trying to obtain the grace of God, the favor of God, the blessing of God, any other way other than faith alone, is to say what Jesus did through his life, his burial, his, I mean his resurrection, his crucifixion, all of what he did is to say that that wasn't good enough. It's to say that it wasn't sufficient enough. But it was. Under the law, sin becomes attractive because it draws our attention to it. That's why Paul said where there is no law, there is no sin. Why? Because you're not attracted to it. But under grace, under the grace and love of God, the holiness of God becomes attractive to me. You know, some people get it in their head that, you know, okay, well, we're under grace. Well, that means that, you know, nothing matters. Well, that's not true. But my desires change because we're being filled with the Spirit by faith, as Paul says, and because we're filled with the Spirit now, the things that I desire, the things that are attractive to me are the things that are attractive about Christ, about Jesus. When I think about Him, it's His holiness that I'm attracted to. There's an old song that says, and the cares or the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. It's like that if we just walk in it, my friends, if we just embrace what Christ has already done. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you. Lord, we glorify you this morning that your great love for us is what drove you, Lord Father, to come and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Lord, we are so thankful for your mercy and your grace, and Lord, we're thankful that you have pointed us and opened our eyes to see all that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. Lord, I pray for those who will be listening to this message, that, Lord, regardless of what their situation is, I pray, Lord Father, that you would open their eyes to their need for Jesus Christ, and to be able to live the life vicariously through him, a life of love, of peace, of joy. Of long suffering, of meekness and temperance against such, Lord Father, you said there is no law. So touch your people, Lord Father. Show them your way. Show them your heart and how much you love them, Father, that they might see all that Jesus has done for them on their behalf. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, praise the Lord.